0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The Queen Liliuokalani Trust owns some 6,000 acres, most on the Big Island. Its mission is to serve orphan or indigent children, mainly native Hawaiian keiki. Today, HBR's Kuve Hiroishi joins us to talk about the trust's new strategy to leverage its assets and to expand its services. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Catherine. You were on point with the pronunciation there <laughs> for the birthday girl, Queen Liliuokalani. Yeah, recent changes at the Ali'i Trust uh, that were put in place by trustees recently by Hawaii's last reigning monarch is, is sort of creating this confusion in the community. And we'll dive deeper into that in a moment. But for folks who might not be aware, as you as mentioned, Queen Lili Okalane did leave nearly her entire estate uh, to Native Hawaiian orphaned and, and disadvantaged Kamali'i or youth. And for almost hundred more than 100 years now, the trust has been serving those vulnerable communities through social services and really has become a model here in hawaii for culturally not just culturally appropriate uh, interventions but culturally based and aina-based programming uh, to really engage uh, these youth and this is in the tradition of trust matriarchs like auntie malia craver and beginning in 2015 trustees uh, wanted to reassess how they were doing and look really to the long-term perpetual trust role that they see. And part of that was to really look at the data and the research about where the needs are for Native Hawaiian children. Uh, Nalei Akina, who is the vice president uh, for the trust and chief of programming there, explains to us what that data looks like. So Native Hawaiian children, as a lot of
2: folks know, are overrepresented in state systems, including juvenile justice, foster care and homelessness. In fact, I think our most recent Child Welfare Services Report indicated that almost half of the foster care system were comprised of Native Hawaiian children and the rates are similarly high within the juvenile justice system with Native Hawaiian youth being disproportionately overrepresented in both detention and probation. And then, um, you know, 31% of our homeless population is Native Hawaiians. So we know that as a trust, we do have a kuleana to evolve our services to adapt to the changing needs of our most vulnerable Kamali'i over time.
1: So that brings us back to some of that confusion going on uh, in the community right now. So part of uh, this expansion really in services, uh, the trust in the last five years has purchased more than $26 million in land uh, outside of, of what it already owns because it saw needs in communities like uh, Kapolei, for example, where there's a growing need uh, for services uh, and a strong Native Hawaiian community base. And so uh, these these areas like juvenile justice, foster care, and homelessness were particular areas that the trust uh, really wanted to to use their resources uh, to support. And part, uh, I guess on the other end of that, uh, they had decided as well to to consolidate uh, services and close two sites here on Oahu. These were long-known uh, long, long known, uh, service sites for social services in Punalu'u, uh, the Hale'aha, and then here in town, uh, many may be familiar, in Kapalama off of Halona Street is sort of their Honolulu unit hub. Those sites, uh, as of yesterday, have closed, and about... Uh, eight staff members were laid off at at both sites, uh, and another six who were working were uh, transitioned and encouraged to apply at at other sites. Um, And all of this, you know, a little bit of it was uh, COVID-inspired as well. Uh, Everyone's really struggling to figure out how to best serve their their constituents or their communities uh, when you can't have social gatherings and these these hubs in Punalu and, and in Honolulu were really uh, areas where uh, communities and children could come and gather and have services and have um, social gatherings and that's not happening right now. So they're moving a lot of uh, their programming and material online. So Just so these
0: closures are they're
1: temporary or permanent? they are permanent in terms of the services and the uh there are other kipuka or services nearby uh, that uh that beneficiaries can go and and um, go ahead and and use Uh, but uh, for a lot in the community i think they they just felt a little blindsided some in the community were blindsided by the closures uh the lands as far as the trust is concerned they haven't decided on whether uh, they will be selling or leasing them out. Ideally, they want to lease them out to nonprofits or organizations that can still serve that particular community. Uh, and so I think those that uncertainty over what's happened and not hearing about it for some uh, really caused that, that confusion. But as we saw today in the Star Advertiser, we did uh, see the opening of Lydia's house, which was... Uh, a new acquirement, like uh, we had mentioned, that $26 million in new property that they had purchased, uh, Queen Lili Okalani Trust open a uh, building in downtown Honolulu to use uh, as a youth service center uh, for uh, folks, uh, either youth getting into uh, trouble with the juvenile system or homeless who really need a place to stay. Uh, these are parts of that expansion that we were talking about. Um, but the uh, the way that I guess the, the community had responded to it was uh, one of, of shock. And so we asked uh, Nale Akina to really explain, you know, what went behind that decision uh, to close those two Kipuka.
2: You know, Hale and our Honolulu Kipuka have held a very special place in so many of our lives over the years. And you know, for us to strategically make these kinds of decisions are not, are obviously difficult decisions and not easy. Um, It has resulted in the elimination of some positions as we transition to the new service delivery model and also plan for expansion and reaching our most vulnerable um, where they they are. Um, Not all of our employees were laid off and many of those colleagues were able to stay on and find a new positions in you know the other areas of work that we're doing.
1: So we did hear from uh, Gwen Kim. She's a retired social worker who worked at the Queen Elizabeth Trust. My goodness, for thirty more than thirty years. And uh, Kim was sort of the the impetus for my finding out about this because she had posted uh, on social media that, uh, you know, all this was going on and we weren't consulted. And so looking into that, uh, we got to hear from Kim and her concerns.
0: In
3: uh, the past, when I was there, yeah. it was regular feedback. We were yeah. in the communities. We had many different groups and we'd feedback, okay? So yeah. this... Not not once has the public
2: been asked. Mm -hmm. That's why people are shocked.
1: So that I think she sums it up uh, well. I should say that uh, two, three years ago in 2017, the trust did uh, gather Native Hawaiian leaders or leaders from the Native Hawaiian community, also from other Ali'i trusts like Kamehameha Schools to really sit down and reassess what the trust was going to do into the future. So there was... Um, that consultation, at least, uh, but for beneficiaries and for long-term, uh, long-time supporters of the trust, I think, um, still a little shock there. But we will delve in t- uh, into that more uh, tomorrow. Okay, and, and
0: uh, uh, just so I understand, so so the the children that they serve, basically it's up to 18 years?
1: It was up to 18, it was expanded uh, earlier this year to include a uh, youth up to the age of 26 to really provide that continuum of services and that's the expansion, yeah, we wow. were talking about.
0: Okay, so they're really trying to expand their reach and, and provide more services to to a, a needy community.
1: And in the long term, too, right? Not just today, but make sure that everything's positioned uh, for the future long term of the trust.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. We have been talking to HPR's Ku'uwehi about the Liliuokalani Trust and its strategy for meeting and expanding its mission to serve Native Hawaiians. You can read her stories online at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your backyard quiz. <laughs> While many people remember September 2nd as the anniversary of the formal surrender of Japanese forces aboard the USS Missouri, as we mentioned earlier, it is also the birthday of the last monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii, Queen Liliuokalani. She was born 182 years ago in 1838 to uh, High Chief Caesar uh, Kaluaiku Kapaakea and High Chiefess Analea Keohokalole. But she was given to another couple to Hanai, or adopt. For today's quiz, we want to know the names of Queen Liliuokalani's Hanai parents. Think you know? Call 941 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it
4: right.
5: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com.
0: Conversation, we've been reaching out across the state to get the local snapshot on which economic sectors have been hardest hit by the pandemic and where there might be some room for hope. Today we focus on the Big Island uh, where the uh, the county's uh, Director of Research and Development, Diane Lay, when well, she spoke with the Conversations Harrison, uh, Her- Conversations Harrison Patino about what the county is doing to help affected businesses and residents and about where some 80 million dollars of CARES Act funding is being spent.
3: I think the the biggest impact has been to our visitor sector, and then that ripples out into the service providers that are affiliated with the visitor sector, including our restaurants, our farmers and ranchers, and suppliers. The resorts are really significant employers, and they've had to lay off a significant number of workers on the island. So, yeah, it's been a challenge. And we know that going forward, you know, some of the other businesses are going to need to shed more workers as the months drag on. We just heard that UHERO is projecting an approximate 16% closure rate for small businesses on the island, and that is a a big challenge, but on the flip side of that, I think the bright spot is the tremendous entrepreneurial spirit and know-how of Hawaii Island. We have approximately 21,000 businesses on the island. And of that, 18,000 are entrepreneurs. They have no employees and they've been impacted by the COVID emergency, ranging from virtually no income since March to very limited income. And a few have seen growth in their business. But I think that most of our folks out there, regardless of where they are at on that spectrum, have been thinking, what does the future hold for me? How do I re- reframe my business? and not only survive, but thrive in the future.
6: So in Hawaii, there's been a lot of talk about taking a workforce that's been displaced and using that workforce's transferable skills and funneling them into a different kind of workforce. Has there been any kinds of efforts in that regard on the Big Island?
3: Not currently. I think while we do have some support resources, our American Job Center, which is a federal, state, and county collaborative, can provide no cost career counseling and some skills training and job search. Right now, people, they want jobs. They don't want training. So it's really an employer's market now. But the question is, is what business is expanding rapidly enough to bring on people? That really becomes a challenge.
6: So you mentioned that entrepreneurial spirit of the Big Island. Now, as PPP and SBA loans are beginning to expire, the question is, what programs and resources do exist to help struggling businesses stay afloat?
3: Well, I think the biggest one right now that's launching this week is the county has contracted with credit union and five affiliate credit unions. So we have a total of six credit unions that are going to be rolling out with CARES Act funding grants for businesses and nonprofits because. They basically function as a business as well, providing services to the community. Um, but those funds are going to be available for grants, um, up to $10,000 per business entity. Um, and you have to be able to prove that you were negatively impacted, obviously, as your operation. But it will, um, you know, provide some substantial um, support for um, businesses that um, had no choice but to um paying their rent or their mortgage, costs, like insurance, as well as if they're able to um, start up again uh, those costs that are related to COVID. So that's a total of $22 million that the county has allocated out of the $80 million it's receiving from the CARES Act. So that's a, a substantial amount. We've also got some other resources that are going out, including $2.5 million for childcare operations, both existing ones as well as encouraging um, those that have the capacity to start up. And then we have a number of other programs that are more along the lines of uh, social services, but all of them affiliated with either businesses or nonprofits. So some of the other CARES Act funding, again, we received a total of $80 million. The $4 million is directed to community assistance, and that will allow for expanded COVID health care operations for three specific health care providers so that they can do improvements to their facilities and be able to continue to provide services, including a little bit of testing funds in there. We're going to be rolling out a pretty significant trauma training, both for professionals as well as for community members so that that someone is in trauma or a family is in trauma and who to go seek resources or direct that family to. We've got some post-prisoner reentry assistance that's going to help to stabilize those folks coming out of prison and standing up a few resilience hubs that we're going to provide some child care, learning activities, and connectivity for students that are having to you know, learn remotely as well as food and referral resources. And then we have a number of grants that are going out to a variety of organizations that are going to provide almost 4 million in food assistance. So pretty pleased to see that going on. And then we know that individual families have been impacted by the loss of jobs or reduced hours. And so we've put across $8.5 million to keep families in their homes. And this allow folks to receive payment every month for rent or leases or mortgages, as well as um, we have $1.5 million to keep uh, utilities connected, your electricity, your non-government water sources, those types of things. So all in all, we think it's going to be a a nice package for the community. $80 million circulating in our economy will help take us a
6: long way. Of course, everybody's hurting right now, and dispersing this money amongst the community is greatly appreciated. But when you first and when the department first had to make the decision of where this money was going, was there a sense of which areas were in the most dire need?
3: Well, what we did was we came up with a wish list. Our department, because it's the Economic Development Office for the county, we're pretty, have a pretty diverse range of programmatic specialists, and we dive deep into the variety of needs that are in the business community. But we also knew that we had a lot of social service needs, and so we reached out to some of the expertise in other county departments to identify those those needs. And so I didn't mention earlier, but we also put a substantial amount of money towards addressing our homeless because they're a highly vulnerable population out on the streets, and we want to make sure that those that need housing or need to be quarantined can be, and so we've been able to put some resources there. So we came up with a wish list. We had to narrow it down. We met with the mayor a few times and looked to his direction, which was, let's help the families and businesses first, We need to take care of the injury that's occurring, the hurt that's out there in our community first rather than leaning forward. We can lean forward with other resources and we can lean forward in the future by continuing to advocate for additional federal dollars to come to the county so that we can help people move forward beyond COVID. But we know for right now, we've got a world of hurt out there and we want to make sure that we're taking care of it.
6: Now, you mentioned that you hear a report earlier and state unemployment is hovering around 12, 13 percent. Is there a sense of what that number might be more locally in Hawaii County?
3: So the July figures for unemployment on Hawaii Island was 12.8 percent, which is approximately a little over 7,000. Now, that's down from earlier in the COVID emergency, which when we were in the 20th percentile. But, you know, we know that our job losses are concentrated at the West Hawaii resorts, and that impacts the West Hawaii communities in two ways. One is that's approximately 5,000 employees out of the West Hawaii resorts. Many of them do live in West Hawaii, but they are also scattered along the northern Hamakua coast. They're in Hilo and Puna as well, as well as some in South Kona. So we know that there are pockets everywhere, but we also know that the West Hawaii business community was heavily reliant on the visitor numbers there, people dining, people shopping, renting vehicles, uh, water sports activities. So we know that we've seen a lot of hurt there. But when we look at 12% 12% unemployment, 7,000 people out of approximately a labor force of 91,000, 92,000, we know that that does not account for the self-employed, right? If we have 18,000 people that are self-employed out of 22,000 you know, total businesses, we know that there's still a lot of unaccounted for and we don't have numbers from the WHOA unemployment program.
6: Would it be safe to assume that the areas of the Big Island that aren't so reliant on that tourism economy, is there a little bit more resilience in those areas?
3: There definitely is. You can see it by the traffic um, you know, on a day-to-day basis coming in from the urban areas, from the rural areas.
6: Now, is there any idea of what sectors are actually hiring? Any current economic mm-hmm. opportunities for Big Island residents?
3: I think we're still seeing, you know, the construction industry is being pretty resilient right now. The resorts have either had on schedule renovations or they're taking this opportunity with the downswing to bring back. Some other plumbers, electricians, and folks like that that can actually drill down and do more than just you know replace a light bulb, but actually you know rewire a section of the house as needed. So we're seeing a lot of that. I think there's some housing construction that's still going on, and then I think that there's really opportunities for professionals that are trained in business coaching, planning, and reinvention right now. That's one of the areas I think is untapped opportunity.
6: And Diane, any final thoughts on Mm -hmm. the economic snapshot on the big island?
3: Well, I guess I would say overall that while we may be stumbling a bit in every crisis, there's certainly an opportunity. And I think that when we look at entrepreneurial spirit and the entrepreneurial know-how on this island, you know, our business people, they're going to adjust. They're going to find their way. And so we encourage people to take advantage of the CARES Act funding support that's out there right now. We also encourage them to take advantage of some of the resources the county has put forward. We have task forces to provide training for businesses in how to provide for a safe and healthy workplace. We have teams that will come out and show you how to operate your business and spread people apart in a restaurant, but also come and show you how to spray with safe disinfectants. And we're here to continue working with our community. We know we're going to get through this.
0: That was Hawaii County Research and Development Director Diane Lay talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the state of the Big Island's economy going forward.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the member schools of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, accepting applications throughout the current school year. Find a school search at hais.us. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll find out how the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs and the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation are teaming up to advance innovation in cryptocurrency. We'll learn about the Digital Currency Sandbox and find out what new innovations are being prototyped in this first cohort. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
0: Our reality check today throws a light on cockfighting. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Blaze Lovell on the line today. Good morning.
7: Morning, Catherine.
0: So we know that fighting chickens is not legal here in Hawaii.
7: It's not legal here, and it's actually not legal in any state or U.S. territory, and that's kind of where this story begins. Now, we have this animal welfare group. They're called Animal Wellness Action. And in 2018, uh, when President Donald Trump signed the Farm Act, there's actually one line in it that outlawed chicken fighting in places uh, like U.S. territories, including Guam and what this group did is they looked through shipping records uh, uh, for Guam over a three year period and they found that many of the fighting chickens uh, that were being sold there actually came from here in Hawaii.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, interesting that they actually dug through all those records.
7: Yeah, it's almost, it's almost like we as reporters do. And I thought like, oh, man, if I could have gotten my hands on those <laughs> records. But, you know, with fighting chickens, we know it's it's been a problem here in Hawaii and in other states for, for years. And uh, uh, like this group and other advocates I talked to yesterday pointed out, you know, it's just one of those things where there isn't the political will to really crack down on it.
0: Well, I know that uh, cockfighting is very big in the Philippines, you know, because we hear the arguments, well, it's a cultural thing. And, uh, you know, there is a large Filipino population in Guam, which I think has supported cockfighting. There's like a like a home, you know, a center where they actually, you know, where they used to showcase these fights. Um, but, yeah, times have changed. And and, uh, yeah, so these activists are, are basically calling on the federal government to what step in.
7: They are. They've sent uh, the letter and all the materials from their investigation to U.S. Attorney Kenji Price yesterday. Now, um, I got a statement from the U.S. Uh, attorney's Office, and they said that they've turned over those materials to an investigative agency. Uh wasn't specific as to which, but it looks like they may, at least might be starting to look into it here.
0: And so, uh, you know, what did they think about all this in Guam?
7: Well, and Guam, you know, you just mentioned it. Uh, um, uh, the idea that this is part of the culture and to a certain extent it's here too. I, I recall in 2018, um, the governor-elect at the time, you know, I think she she defended um, chicken fighting. At the time it was illegal and, you know, she said at least for Guam, they wanted it to stay legal even with the new Farm Act. So there is that sense that, you know, it's been going on for so long, why can't it just stay? And if I recall, there's actually been, I think, a few measures at our own legislature and at the city council that have tried to get that provision into law somehow that, you know, this is a cultural activity. And while there isn't any overt reference to that, to to a certain extent, some advocates here believe that the law does protect uh, chicken fights. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, There's an entire section... Dealing with dog fighting, and that is a felony. But um, there's a separate section, uh, and this is an actual line in our state law that says that bulls, bears, and chickens, if you were to fight them, that would just be a misdemeanor. Interesting. Um, yeah. There's also other issues with enforcement. Typically, if you're the police trying to break up a fight, uh, you know, you could really only arrest the people that are in the ring who actually. Have possession of the chickens it's it's pretty hard on the enforcement into
0: now with the sale of these chickens I mean it's not illegal to ship chickens right through the mail
7: not illegal at all and that's another issue it's it, it's that you know hi hey, if you're the police and you don't have guidelines in the law how do you distinguish from uh, someone growing chickens to make eggs versus someone growing chickens to uh be fighters one day that's another issue with it and yeah it's not illegal to ship them through the mail even if everyone knows what they're going to be doing you know they're in the end it's livestock they could be farm animals maybe they're not but um who knows and that's that's what's making it hard to uh really drill down into who's doing it how they're doing it and you know what to do about it
0: and and these chickens i mean they're pretty pricey right
7: they can be and that's one thing the animal wellness action pointed out is that they could range anywhere from three hundred dollars up to three thousand dollars and that is one expensive chicken
0: (laughs) yeah i i can see that i mean uh Um, Yeah, all very interesting, Uh, you know, that tie, though, the fact that there's so many breeders here on Oahu. I mean, I I know I've been to raids, cockfighting raids, you know, in Pearl City over the years. But um, interesting that they're actually uh, supplying all those chickens uh, to Guam.
7: As a former Pearl City resident, can confirm (laughs) there may be some farms there. (laughs)
0: Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Blaze.
7: Thanks, that, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read his story about cockbiting, visit civilbeat.org. <laughs> Marissa uh, Matsusaka is a certified public uh, accountant, and she's the sole proprietor of Mahina Ledger's, a business which she started last year. She had several referrals leading up to March of this year, but her business dropped when her major client, Kohana Rum, uh, hit the economic cliff because of the decline in tourism. She's a member of the Entrepreneur Sandbox in Kaka'ako and wrote a blog for their website detailing some of her struggles and accounting tips for entrepreneurs. Uh, Matsusaka spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai about adjusting her business and surviving the COVID crisis.
8: I was actually pretty busy up until the pandemic started. Luckily, I had a huge rush of business since when the pandemic started. So I was doing really well. Just when I was starting to get settled, we I learned about the first case of COVID here. And then things just snowballed from there. Um, One week later, I lost my biggest client, which was about probably 75% of my income because they were um, in the hospitality restaurant industry. So a majority of their income went pretty much to nothing when the stay-at-home order started.
9: So with that business out, what have you been doing since then to make ends meet?
8: Biggest lifesaver was the I applied for the PPP loan, the Paycheck Protection Program. So I got that, and also the government stimulus check has helped keep me afloat. And I also had a smaller client that I was still doing work for. Like, a, I had a big project with them, and I still had some monthly accounting duties with them. Yeah, I was still working, so that has kept kept me afloat financially and also just planning ahead, budgeting, watching my expenses. That's how I've been surviving, basically. Actually, right after I wrote that blog post in back in June, my client, my small client, gave me more work to do on a consistent basis, and I also got another referral for another big project, so that has kept me going.
9: Have you been actively looking for new clients?
8: Actually, I haven't been looking for any client. I've just been really fortunate that businesses have needed accounting done. And it seems like, well, the client that I'm working with right now on the project, it seemed like the pandemic kind of forced them to reevaluate and they wanted to get their books done. So that has been a huge source of business for me.
9: What about your large client? Have you been working with them on anything, or is that kind of dried up at this
8: point? No. Yeah. So I was actually supposed to go back on May 31st. Um, I think that's when the first stay-at-home order was going to be lifted, but they furloughed, I think, most of their staff, and I'm not sure if they're even operating right now, but I don't think I'll be going back there, and I'm not sure what they're going to do with their operations.
9: As far as accounting, what is the outlook for your industry?
8: Well, it seems like it hasn't changed much for accountants, fortunately. Um, All businesses need accounting, so it looks like right now the biggest challenge for them is navigating all the new requirements for the CARES Act loan and also the new payroll room So it's just navigating how to properly account for everything or so just make sure that they're doing everything correctly. So it's just navigating all the new requirements for all the stimulus money, basically.
9: In that blog post you mentioned about applying for PPP and then also the city's program. Can you just talk about your experience with both of those programs uh, to help your, your business?
2: For the
8: first one was the PPP loan. Um, Right when I heard about it, I got on it and I applied right away with CPB. And it was a relatively easy process. And I just made sure I got all my documents in order and I submitted my application. And I heard back about the status of my loan within the week. And then a few days after I applied for my loan... The money was deposited into my bank, so that was a really, really easy process, and it was really fast, and it was also a huge relief. The only thing that I was kind of concerned about was the forgiveness about how much I would have to pay back, because I didn't want to have to pay back anything if possible. So keeping up with all the requirements for that has been the only stressful thing, but as far as getting the money, it was a really easy process. As far as unemployment goes, that was extremely difficult. I remember trying to apply for that, knowing that self-employed and gig workers, that they opened the unemployment for those people. So initially it took me about probably a week to even get in the system. And then I know I would get kicked out a bunch. So it took me one or two weeks to even apply for something. And then once I got that, it was another probably two or three weeks to even get into the system to submit my claim. So I submitted my claim, and then I got it probably about a month after I submitted my claim. So that was not an easy process. And I remember I had to again and start clicking like 20 times before I could even get into the website. So I got one unemployment claim, but since I was an employee for three quarters of the year and a self-employed for three months out of last year, all my other claims were rejected after that. So I'm not sure what happened. So other than my one unemployment claim. I haven't gotten anything
0: else. That was the Conversations Jason Ubai talking with Marissa Matsusaka of Mahina Ledgers, talking about adjusting her business during the COVID crisis and her experience applying for government financial aid.
5: Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at HonoluluMuseum.org
1: Foodland's Give Aloha program makes it easy to donate to your favorite charity and it matches your gift. Shop at any Foodland, Sack and Save, and Foodland Farm stores this month and designate Hawaii Public Radio at checkout. Your donation helps to sustain our statewide public service, and along with your groceries, you'll take home our big mahalo.
0: This morning, our backyard quiz tested your knowledge of Hawaiian history and the tradition of Hanai, or adoption. Well, today marks the birthday of the last monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Queen Liliuokalani. Born in Honolulu in 1838, she was the Hanai child of Abner Paki and his wife Laura Kunia, and Hanai sister to Bernice Pawahi. In her autobiography, Hawaii's story by Hawaii's Queen, Liliuokalani wrote, I was destined to grow up away from the house of my parents. Immediately after my birth, I was wrapped in the finest soft tapa cloth and taken to the house of another chief by whom I was adopted. This was and is indeed is in accordance with Hawaiian customs. It's not easy to explain its origin to those alien to our national life, but it seems perfectly natural to us. As intelligible a reason as can be given is that this alliance by adoption cemented the ties of friendship between the chiefs. That is today's quiz, and congratulations to our winner, Kaihoku from Hilo. You got it right. If you have have an idea for a quiz, write to TalkBack at (laughs) HawaiiPublicRadio.org. You know, it's been about a month since scientists released four monk seal pups back in the wild after nursing them back to health. They were released on August 5th on Midway Atoll National Wildlife Refuge after an extended rehabilitation at Kei Kai the Marine Mammal Center Hospital and Visitor Center in Kailua-Kona. We talked to Cara Field, Medical Services Director, and Dr. Sophie Wariski, who was just named the conservation veterinarian at Kei Kai Now, they happen to be both in Sausalito this week, where the years of research with California marine mammals set the foundation for the work in the islands to keep the monk seals alive. We start off with Dr. Field.
4: When we released our four Hawaiian monk seal patients, three of them had a satellite tag glued to their fur on their back, and that was so that we could track them. The fourth one was in the middle of molting, and so the satellite tag would not have stayed on. Um, so we did not want to tag that for seal but the three that we do have the satellite tag data for from the tracks that we can see they're all very active and are hanging out within, you know, going offshore off of Midway Island and uh, um, being very active. So they're thriving. They seem to be, yes. Yeah, sometimes it can be hard to actually get a visual on these little guys because we don't get the satellite data real time. But certainly there are people out keeping an eye out for them.
0: Okay, but some, some good news, just simply because I know there was a setback um, at the center when we had Pohaku die after weeks of, of nursing. And, and you folks were encouraged at first but she just succumbed to uh, toxoplasmosis.
4: Yes, unfortunately, Pohaku was an adult female that lives in the main Hawaiian Islands, and she did strand with toxoplasmosis, and that caused pretty significant brain damage from the inflammation associated with that parasite. So despite several months of care with daily treatment, unfortunately the damage was just too severe and she
10: did not make it in the end.
0: And Dr. Sophie Worski were you there um, at the center as all this was coming down?
10: I was, yes. I've been at the center for the last five years and I'm just transitioning into a new position of Hawaiian monk seal conservation veterinarian. So I'm very excited to be able more with these patients.
4: Pohaku was a really a bittersweet case because we learned so much from treating the seal. This was the first time that we were actually able to provide a treatment for a monk seal for toxoplasmosis for a prolonged period of time. Normally, when they get toxoplasmosis, they die very, very quickly, within a day or two. So we, we just don't even get the opportunity to try. But Pohaku had a lot of spirit and... We learned so much from her about about how effective a treatment could be and if we can even pull off a treatment plan like that with such a large animal especially.
0: So talk about the need for the long-term care you know, of these animals as, as they get routed to your facility.
4: Absolutely. So the, the long-term care for most of our patients is really the most important thing. For these critically endangered Hawaiian monk seals, there's only about 1,400 or so of them left which is not a very high number. So every seal that comes into care, that comes into rehabilitation, is, is incredibly important for the population, especially the females, because they're the ones that are going to have the pups. So I w- I'll turn it over to Dr. Sophie to talk a little bit more about
10: how we care for them. We've learned a lot working through with a number of different species here at the Marine Mammal Center in California that has helped us transition to being able to have best care for Hawaiian monk seals. We see a lot of really young animals that come in. They're they're young, they're just sort of figuring out their new environment and learning how to forage. And they're often pretty malnourished and impressionable. So one of the important things for us is to be able to make sure that we can really teach them the skills that they need to be able to survive in the wild. So one of the things that we employ, one of our tools is called enrichment. And that's um, a whole suite of tools of different things that we use to try to stimulate them to learn about their environment. We obviously can't replicate their entire environments in rehabilitation, so it's really important for us, especially with Hawaiian monk seals, since they do spend a significant amount of time in rehabilitation. They'll spend anywhere up to six months. Um, and most recently with our, our patients that we've just released, they actually had to spend up to 10 months because of COVID Um, we really have to make sure that they are continuing to learn about their environment and they're still engaged and curious and not dependent on people for their food. So we'll use things like enrichment to be able to continue to stimulate those skills. And as you can see with our four that are now released, they're out and engaging with their environment, which is exactly what we want to see.
0: Now, what's the largest number of uh, monk seals that you've had at the facility? This
4: last year, when we had these four young animals, we also had Pohaku, who was undergoing treatment for toxoplasma, and we had, for just a short time, a couple of weeks, another adult female who was who was on site as well. So seven is the highest, but then this last spring when we had six animals on site at one time, that was also quite high for us.
0: Can you talk about the state of toxoplasmosis You know, in the Pacific? I don't know what you're seeing over there in Sausalito with uh, some of the other animals, the mammals that you care for there?
4: So Toxoplasma is transmitted. It's a parasite that's transmitted by cats. And uh, the Hawaiian Islands, cats are not a endemic species. So cats were introduced species. And unfortunately, they brought this with them when they were introduced to the islands. Not just in Hawaii, but other Pacific Islands and other places that did not previously have cats. The same kind of problem has occurred in, in wildlife. So what we see is that the, the parasite, the little eggs of the parasite enter the water and then they get filtered by different marine species, including fish. So fish can take in these parasites, and then the seals, when they eat the fish, become infected. And that's really the the goal of the parasite, is to be able to reproduce. But the seals are not a normal host for them. And unfortunately, this parasite goes to the brain and causes severe inflammation and brain damage. And then that's when we find the animals that are already suffering from inflammation and brain damage, and they're often in very good condition because... It, the, it presents pretty acutely. We usually find that these seals that have been infected are, are suddenly, you know, stranded, sitting on a beach and not responding normally to people and other activity around them. And then when we, we run a blood test to confirm that they have been exposed to this parasite, and unfortunately it often causes such severe da- uh, damage that the monk seals die before we can treat them. And there in
0: California, you've got bobcats, but they carry toxo as well, right?
4: Right. So any cat species can carry toxoplasma. And here in California, we do have bobcats, cougars, other cat species. And so some of the wildlife has adapted to having cats. However, we do still see our our endangered southern sea otters are a species that have not adapted well because the number of cats has increased over the years with, you know, with the introduction of more domestic cats. So that's really amplified the amount of toxoplasma that enters the environment um, and affects our marine mammal species here as well, especially southern sea otters which are also an endangered species.
0: And the big effort to get the four uh, Hawaiian monk seals back out in the wild, I mean, that was a real push, right, a real collective effort by many agencies. The return
4: of these four Hawaiian monk seals is really the culmination of a, a very massive effort that was initiated by National Marine Fisheries, or NOAA. And the NOAA Hawaiian Monk Seal Conservation Program has been in effect for decades, and they've been working super hard to find a way to... Save this species literally from extinction. So we started partnering with the National Marine Fisheries a handful of years ago, about six, seven years, seven years ago now, to work to create a rehabilitation hospital for monk seals specifically because much of the work that Mole has done has found that very thin and underweight and prematurely weaned uh, young Hawaiian monk seals do not survive to grow into adults. And that is because they just didn't gain enough weight during the time with mom. And, and maybe they got separated from mom or, or maybe their food, food resources were very low and these young animals that were more inexperienced weren't thriving. So the Marine Mammal Center was able to use our expertise in taking care of young, undernourished animals, uh, seals especially, and, and build this hospital and really focus on, on getting these young animals back up to weight Where their survivorship is going to be much greater. We welcome reports of any sighting and we do continue to monitor and work with the local communities to to monitor the seals when they're hauled out on beaches, when they're having pups. Um, All that information is really important in helping us understand where these seals are going and uh, tracking their progress, especially when they are raising pups, um, and being able to step in and intervene if an animal is in need of medical attention. Or help, and to really work with the public on educating everybody about the importance of these animals and why we should all care about preserving them as a species. The only other thing that comes to mind is, remember, we, we always ask people that while we all enjoy, very much enjoy viewing our wildlife, our seals and sea lions and sea otters and everything on our beautiful coast, we do remind people that they are wild animals and they are protected, and we just ask people to enjoy them from a bit of a distance.
0: And we know about physical distancing, don't we?
4: Medical Director Dr. Cara
0: uh, Cara Fields and Dr. Sophie Wariski were in Sausalito, and we chatted with them. Um, Dr. Sophie is the new Hawaiian monk seal conservation veterinarian at Keikai Ola, the Marine Mammal Center's hospital for Hawaiian monk seals in Kailua, Kona. And the 24-hour hotline to report monk seal sightings is 808-987-0765. Well, we're out of time, but up tomorrow uh, we hear from those in the restaurant industry as they try to hang on during this extended shutdown due to COVID 19. Leave your feedback on our Talk Back line, 808 792 8217. Check us out on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, Talkback at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Find our archive shows online. Uh, go to HPR News and Talk for The Conversation on HawaiiPublicRadio.org. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.